Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everybody, this is Chris, the Public Safety Guru, bringing you another lecture for our EMT lectures. Today we are going to be talking about respiratory emergencies. So you know the drill, pencil and paper, thinking caps, and let's get started about learning how to deal with respiratory emergencies. Now, respiratory distress, this chief complaint makes up about 28% of all EMS responses in the United States. Before we start talking about emergencies and how to treat them, we're going to do a little anatomy and physiology review. So let's talk about the upper airway first. The upper airway consists of a few structures. So starting at the very top, if we were looking at a diagram, we have the nasal pharynx, the nasal air passage, the pharynx, mouth, oral pharynx, epiglottis, and larynx. Some books will say that the upper airway consists of the trachea. I always say the trachea is the end of the upper airway and the beginning of the lower airway. It is the only structure that is part of both upper and lower airway. From the trachea, we have the bronchi, which then break up into the bronchioles, and then eventually into the smallest structure, which is the alveoli. Let's not forget though that the diaphragm is part of the respiratory system. The diaphragm is the main muscle of breathing. It's controlled by the phrenic nerve. Remember that spinal nerve we talked about so long ago? And think of this, the diaphragm at rest is up against the lungs. When we take a deep breath in, the diaphragm will contract downward, allowing the lungs to fully expand. Once this happens, the diaphragm will contract and will release the air back out from the lungs. This takes place with every inspiration and expiration. So now what I want you to do is you need to make sure that you understand these terms. First one, dyspnea, tachypnea, bradynipnea, hypoxia, hypoxemia, anoxia, hypoventilation, hyperventilation, and minute volume. These should all be three by five cards and you should be able to define which, what each one of these is. Now let's talk about the muscles of respiration. The primary muscle are the diaphragm and intercostals. However, under normal conditions, we should not see the intercostals moving. We do not see this until we are in respiratory distress. Now the accessory muscles will only appear when we have labored breathing. And this consists of the stanocladomastoid, the neck muscle, the pectorals in the chest, the intercostals, the trapezia, which is the shoulder neck area, and the abdominal muscles. By the way, that was stanocladomastoid that I was trying to say. Respiratory sounds and breath sounds. We need to ask ourselves, are breath sounds present and are they equal bilaterally? Now, the one thing that the EMT is going to have to look for 
are the sounds that can indicate an, an obstruction. So we have snoring, strider, gurgling, wheezing, crackles, which can be then described as rails and ronchi. These are the various different sounds that may tell us what is going on with our patients. Now, one of the tools we want to use is the same tool that we use for pain assessment, O-P-P-Q-R-S-T. O for onset, P for, pro for provoking factor, P for palliation, what makes it feel better, Q for quality, are we having difficulty getting air in or out, reoccurrence, R for reoccurrence, S for severity, and T for time. We're also going to conduct a pertinent body check. We're going to be checking the chest or looking at the chest, getting our lung sounds, see if the neck has any type of JVD, and we're going to check for pedal edema in the ankles. We're also going to assess if our patient has a productive cough. What are the signs of adequate air exchange? Well, first, we're going to look at rate. Is it normal? Rhythm. Consistent rise and fall of the chest wall over an extended period of time. And then depth. Chest rise plus good tidal volume. And we're also going to auscultate to see if we have that good, clear lung sounds. What's the quality? Breath sounds. Are they present and equal? Is there movement in the air from the mouth and or nose? What about the chest expansion? Is it equal and adequate? Is there minimum effort to breathing? Remember this. It may seem like you are assessing a lot when it comes to the respiratory status of our patients, but you're going to be putting all of this together, and when you start practicing your skills, you're going to see that this assessment's done within 30 to 60 seconds. It really is. Let's talk about the general signs and symptoms of respiratory distress. They include restlessness and anxiety, increased breathing rate, tachypnea, increased pulse rate, tachycardia, labored respirations, that's using our accessory muscle use, they're upright or in a tripod position, especially those in, in, that are having an asthma attack, their skin color is going to change, remember we always start off pale, then we turn blue, they could have noisy breathing, and because they are breathing so hard and so fast, they have the inability to speak due to these breathing efforts, and we call this sentence dyspnea. Now, if we were to look at this from a progression to deterioration, patients will start off in moderate distress, work their way to severe distress, then respiratory failure, and subsequently respiratory arrest. What does this all look like? Well, in moderate distress, the signs and symptoms of respiratory distress will include four to five word sentences. They'll be in the upright positioning. When they transfer over to severe distress, they will have one to two word sentence dyspnea. They're not able to talk in full sentences now. And this patient would have moved from an upright position to a tripod position. And then respiratory failure, they're unable to support life. Usually these patients have an altered level of consciousness and now they're moving to organ failure. And of course, respiratory rest is absence of any breathing. In general, this would be the treatment that we would give these patients. For those in moderate distress, we would give them a nasal cannula if we have no pulse ox. In severe distress, non-rebreather mask if no pulse ox. Respiratory failure is positive pressure ventilation slash BVM. And in respiratory rest, positive pressure ventilation with monitoring of the pulse because this patient is eventually going to slip into full cardiac arrest. Your role in this is you have to remember 
the EMT should be prepared to intervene when with appropriate oxygen administration and artificial ventilation support. That is your job. You have to know when you're going to give oxygen, how you're going to give oxygen to your patients. Now let's talk the general treatment for our respiratory distress patients. This will always begin with airway. Airway will be based on the patient's condition and comfort. Next, the EMT will need to decide on how they're going to administer oxygen. Will this be done by a cannula, simple face mask, a non-rebreather mask, CPAP, or are we going to be assisting ventilations with positive pressure ventilation via a BVM? Once we have decided this, we are going to position the patient that we need to position them in. We're going to remove any restrictive clothing. We want to reduce their claustrophobia and we want to consider assisting them with the prescribed inhaler if they have one. Last, if we have a pulse ox available, we would go ahead and apply that to the patient and if the if their oxygen level is 94% or above, then we can titrate the oxygen as needed. Once we know that we are treating our patient's respiratory distress, then we could then we can move and complete the secondary assessment, and that would include history, vitals, any pertinent body checks, and then we're going to transport and reassess our patients. Remember, we reassess our patients when they are critical every five minutes and non-critical every 15 minutes. Now I just mentioned talking about an inhaler. Inhalers are prescribed devices that someone will utilize. You probably have seen asthmatic, asthmatic patients have an inhaler that they puff on when they begin to have an asthma attack. Usually the medication is albuterol. This is the generic name. The trade name is Provental, Ventolin, Alupant, and the list goes on. So what are the indications for a meter dose inhaler? Well, this is when your patient exhibits signs and symptoms of respiratory distress and the physician has prescribed an inhaler. But as normal, you need to dice it before you help them with their medication. In case you've forgotten, since we haven't talked about DICE in a while, DICE stands for D, drug slash dose, I, integrity slash indications, C, concentration, clarity, color, and contraindications, and E, expiration date. In my opinion, a three by five car, ladies and gentlemen. Now we're gonna shift gears and we're gonna be talking about causes of respiratory distress. The first thing we're going to talk about is airway obstruction. Remember, this should be a review. Let's first review airway obstruction. Remember with airway obstruction, we have partial and complete obstructions. In a partial, we have to determine if we have good air exchange or poor air exchange. And if neither exists, do we have a complete obstruction then? If you have a complete obstruction, the next thing you got to determine is, are they conscious or unconscious? because we know unconscious, we're gonna do abdominal thrust. If they're unconscious, we're gonna do chest compression slash CPR. Remember that, don't forget it. It is something that you are gonna see on future tests, including block two. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, otherwise called COPD. Asthma, chronic bronchitis, and emphysema are considered COPD. All right, let's break this down a little bit more, asthma. Asthma is the combination of smooth muscle spasms, mucus, and edemia. It's a hyperreactive airway. About 4-5% to 5 of the U.S. population has been diagnosed with asthma. 
Now, you probably have heard the term status asthmaticus. This is prolonged exacerbation, which does not respond to therapy. This is a severe respiratory distress patient that you should be very concerned for, as in my experience, I ended up putting a tube down their lungs and bagging them all the way to the hospital. What happens with asthmatics is essentially their airway fills with mucus, and so it becomes much smaller, and that wheezing is the air trying to bypass through that mucus. The signs and symptoms associated with asthma are dyspnea and labored breathing, signs and symptoms of respiratory distress, which we've already talked about, anxiety, wheezing, and a prolonged expiratory phase. Usually these patients have been diagnosed with asthma and they have been prescribed an inhaler. Okay, let's talk about chronic bronchitis. With chronic bronchitis, we essentially have inflamed bronchial tubes, which once again, restrict the amount of air flowing through the bronchioles and normally our patients will have, or the majority of our patients may have a productive cough. Okay, let's talk a little emphysema now. People who have been diagnosed with emphysema, because of what is going on in their lungs, are prone to spontaneous pneumothorax. You need to remember that. I always think about my mom. My mom has been diagnosed with COPD, and when she has her coughing attacks, I always fear that she's going to have a spontaneous pneumothorax because of her weakened lungs. So you need to remember that. Not about my mom's weakened lungs, but the fact that if you have emphysema, you can possibly have a spontaneous pneumothorax. Now what's going on with emphysemics is they have mucus in the bronchioles, the alveoli has enlarged, and they now have fewer capillaries. And this unfortunately is a condition they're going to live with with the rest of their life. Most patients have been uh, prescribed bronchodilators, some are on steroids, you'll even have those patients that are on supplemental oxygen. These are people that have just done damage to their lungs over their life and now they're paying for it. These are commonly your smokers, which going back to the story of my mom, my mom smoked for 20 years. I know some of you feel overwhelmed with the amount of material that you have to memorize and understand, but I'm going to go ahead and throw you a bone here. For chronic bronchitis and emphysema, our signs and symptoms are going to be the same. First, our patients are going to have a productive cough. They may present with purse breathing, a prolonged expiratory phase, a barrel chest, wheezing and ronchi, and of course, our regular signs and symptoms of respiratory distress. Now for this part, our COPD treatment is going to be a little extensive. It's what we were doing before, but we're going to change up a few things. So airway, once again, we've already discussed that. So we're going to make sure their airway is patent. From there, we're going to administer oxygen. Possibly it's going to be a non-rebreather mask if there is severe respiratory distress, a cannula if mild to moderate respiratory distress, and if we need to assist ventilations, we're going to do that via BVM, and we might consider a CPAP. But once again, that, at least in California, that's a paramedic level piece of equipment. Positioning, fowlers, fowlers or semi-fowlers if not assisting ventilations. As a reminder, most medical patients are transported to hospital in a semi-fowlers position. We're going to remove that restrictive clothing. We're going to reduce any claustrophobia. We're going to consider assisting them with their prescribed inhaler. And if we have a pulse ox, normal for them could be 88 to 92. So we're not really concerned with that 94. So remember that. 
Chronic bronchitis and emphysemic patients, normal pulse ox is 88 to 92. Once we've done this, we're gonna complete the secondary assessment, transport, and reassess. So it's pretty much close, just with a couple of changes. So at this point, ladies and gentlemen, we have finished half of the lecture, or at least based upon the amount of slides I have left. So let's go ahead and take a break. It's a good time for a break because we're going to be jumping into CHF next. So if you've been with me since the beginning, you probably noticed that my podcasts now have a few ads. Um, these ads are a way for me to generate revenue to help me keep the podcast going. So uh, if you don't like the ads, I do apologize, but they're there to benefit the podcast and website. Okay, so now let's jump into CHF. Congestive heart failure is fluid in the lungs. This is one of my top three calls I don't like going on because once again, as I explained in the past, essentially your patient is underwater. Now CHF is caused by left heart failure. When the left side of the heart fails, the blood leaving the lungs has nowhere to go, so it backs up into the lungs and begins in the bases. This is why sometimes you'll hear paramedics say that the patient has basilar rails because this is where the fluid begins to back up and eventually it'll back up into the entire lung to the point that your patient has pink frothy sputum coming out of their throat. Now there are certain risk factors with congestive heart failure. There are arteriosclerosis, hypertension, and an MI. The signs and symptoms associated with CHF are severe respiratory distress, pulmonary edema in the form of rails, pink frothy sputum, JVD, and dependent edemia. If the patient is bedridden, you will see this in the sacral area, or if they walk around, they'll have pedal edema. So when we do see that pink frothy sputum coming out of the throat, we're gonna to need to suction that. So when we start thinking about the treatment in regards to CHF slash pulmonary edema, in airway, we wanna think suction, suction as needed. We're going to administer high flow oxygen. It's either going to be by a non rebreather mask or we're going to be assisting ventilations via positive pressure. And paramedics will probably be considering CPAP. I know I do. Positioning this is high Fowler's. Now, we've talked about this in class, but for those of you that are possibly going to be taking a national registry test, the legs are down. So this is the one time where a patient's feet are not on the gurney. We're gonna put the patient's legs down on the floor, their feet down on the floor with your feet, so we can try to suck all that extra fluid out of the lungs and put it dependent into those feet and ankles. This is something that needs to be done. So when you see how do we transport our patients, well we transport our, transport our patients in the upright position, legs dependent or legs down. We're gonna remove that restrictive clothing, reduce claustrophobia. This will be a rapid transport or reassessment. And we're gonna hopefully try to get that pulse ox above 94%. It's gonna be difficult, but that's gonna be our goal. All right, so let's now talk about pulmonary thromboembolus. Pulmonary embolus are responsible for over 50,000 deaths in the United States. Some of the risk factors associated with pulmonary embolus, which I would suggest you put these on a 3x5 card as you will be tested on them on your block exam, your final exam, and national registry. So here's your risk factors. Infection and thrombosis, irregular heartbeats, namely atrial fibrillation, recent surgeries, especially abdominal and pelvic, 
sickle cell anemia, long bone fractures, bedridden patients, IV drug users, users, oral contraceptives, and childbirth. During your testing, you will be asked about which one of these is not a condition of pulmonary or a risk factor of pulmonary embolus, as well as you will be given several scenario questions regarding different patients. You'll see patients that have been in a cast for several months and now developed respiratory distress. Well, that's going to be a PE. Or you're going to have another question regarding respiratory distress, and this time the patient has a long bone fracture or a recent surgery. Well, that would have been caused by a pulmonary embolus. So that's why it's very important to know the risk factors associated with pulmonary embolus. The signs and symptoms associated with the PE are sudden onset, dyspnea, and tachypnea are usual signs and symptoms of respiratory distress, pleuritic chest pain, cyanosis, normal breath sounds, could have rails in severe cases, may have profound hypotension because of the obstructive shock, they could be in cardiac arrest, and the associated risk factors could be present. The treatment for a PE is airway, of course. We're going to administer high-flow oxygen, either a non-rebreather mask or assist with ventilations as needed via BVM or positive pressure ventilation. Position usually is going to be semi-fowlers to fowlers. We're going to remove any restrictive clothing, reduce claustrophobia, and rapid transport with reassessment. There's really not much we can do here for this patient. This is something that a doctor is going to need to fix. So we want to reduce the amount of damage here by supplying that oxygen. Now, during the COPD portion of this lecture, we are talking about a spontaneous pneumothorax. That's a hole in the lung caused, guess what, spontaneously. So, what does that look like? Well, your patient's going to have the regular signs and symptoms of respiratory distress with diminished lung sounds. This is not a condition of trauma. There's no trauma is associated with this. Once again, this is just spontaneous. Now, those pneumothoraxes that are caused by trauma, we will talk about that in your trauma block lecture. Now, there are other medical conditions that can cause respiratory distress. So, with that, we can add bacterial and viral respiratory infections to the list. So, that would include TB or a, an infection, such as with MRSA. Pneumonia or an upper respiratory infection can also cause respiratory distress. As a matter of fact, Pneumonia is the fifth leading cause of death in the United States. Can you believe that? In modern day 21st century medicine, pneumonia is the fifth leading cause. Now remember, pneumonia is not just a pneumonia. It's, a, it's not a single disease. It's a group of specific infections and it's attacking the uh, respiratory system as well as the immune system. Some of the risk factors associated with pneumonia are smoking, alcoholism, exposure to the cold, extreme ages, so the old and the young, and immune system failures. What does pneumonia look like? Well, our patients appear ill. They normally will have a history of an upper respiratory infection, acute onset of fever chills, general malaise and weakness, a productive cough, tachycardia, may have pleuritic chest pain, and they could have wheezes and crackles, but usually only one lobe. 
since there's not much we can do here for our patients, our treatment will consist of airway, administer of oxygen, this is where you're gonna to have to decide nasal cannula or non-rebreather mask, position of comfort, we're gonna remove that restrictive clothing, try to reduce any claustrophobia, and transport. Now, I don't know if you thought about this, but hyperventilation syndrome is actually a respiratory emergency. Now, here's a long list of things that can cause hyperventilation syndrome. It could be caused by hypoxia, high altitude, pneumonia, pulmonary emboli, asthma, CHF, COPD, hypotension, metabolic disorders, acidosis, hepatic failure, neurological disorders, drug-induced, fever slash sepsis, pain, pregnancy, and my favorite and most popular, psychogenic. Yes, this is that scene in the movie where they have the patient breathing into the paper bag because they're breathing too fast. Most of my hypervent syndrome calls I have gone on have been all psychogenic induced. This is the person who is panicking or who is upset. The signs and symptoms associated with this syndrome are sudden onset, chest pain, symptoms based on etiology, numbness and tingling, cardiopedal spasms, that's when the hands start collapsing on itself and the fingers all come together, tachypnea. Now the treatment, we have to treat the underlying cause. So what is that? We have to figure that out. And we are no longer doing the breathe into a paper bag, so the rebreathing of CO2 is out. So definitely do not be doing that. Okay, so let's talk about immunological emergencies. At least 1,000 Americans per year die of an allergic reaction. Allergy-related allergy emergencies may involve acute airway obstruction or cardiovascular collapse. So a little review. The immune system protects the body from foreign substances and organisms. When a foreign substance invades the body, the body goes on alert the body initiates a series of responses to inactivate the invader. Now the pathophysiology behind the allergic reaction is the body's immune system is now going into overdrive. It releases chemicals to combat the stimulus. This includes histamines and leukotrienes. The allergic reaction could be mild to severe. So when our patient is actually in anaphylaxis, we could have loss of consciousness, hives, swelling of the tongue, inability to swallow, and we could also have rapid swelling of the throat tissue. Now you're gonna see another word for hives called urticaria, spelled U-R-T-I-C-A-R-I-A. Urticaria slash hives, this is what I would describe as consists of small areas of generalized itching or burning that appear as multiple small raised areas on the skin. An allergic reaction could be caused by so many different allergens. You just know them some as insects, peanuts, shellfish, milk, and the list just goes on. I would say probably the one of the more popular ones we go on are insect stings. Deaths from stinging insects far outnumber the deaths from snake bites, believe it or not. Our medical care associated with this is administer basic life support, including oxygen, provide prop, prompt transport to the hospital, reassess vital signs every five minutes, 
for the unstable patient or 15 minutes for the stable patient. Position the patient accordingly, so if they're short of breath, semi-fowlers to fowlers, hypotensive, shock. Request ALS backup if need be. And last, be prepared to maintain the airway or administer CPR because the allergic reaction could get worse. Now remember this for testing purposes. The difference between an allergic reaction and anaphylaxis is the respiratory distress factor. So an allergic reaction can be simply hives. But the minute the patient develops any type of respiratory distress, they are officially in anaphylactic shock. Remember that. You need to remember this for testing purposes. Now, for some patients, they, have met, they may have been prescribed an epinephrine pin. So what epi does is it mimics the sympathetic response. Remember that fight or flight. It causes the blood vessels to constrict. It reverses vasodilation and hypotension. It increases cardiac contractility and relieves bronchial spasms. And it rapidly reverses the effects of anaphylaxis. Epi stimulates the alpha and beta receptors in the body. As with any drug, we should understand the side effects of epi. Side effects could include high blood pressure, increased pulse rate, anxiety, cardiac arrhythmias, pallor skin, dizziness, chest pain, headache, nausea, and vomiting. Well, as Bugs Bunny would say, that's all folks. That concludes your respiratory emergency lecture. I look forward to recording your next one. Have a good afternoon and good luck on your block exam and the rest of your program. So if you've been with me since the beginning, you probably noticed that my podcasts now have a few ads. Um, these ads are a way for me to generate revenue to help me keep the podcast going. So uh, if you don't like the ads, I do apologize, but they're there to benefit the podcast and website. Okay, so now let's jump into CHF. Congestive heart failure is fluid in the lungs. This is one of my top three calls I don't like going on because once again, as I explained in the past, essentially your patient is underwater. Now CHF is caused by left heart failure. When the left side of the heart fails, the blood leaving the lungs has nowhere to go, so it backs up into the lungs and begins in the bases. This is why sometimes you'll hear paramedics say that the patient has basal rails because this is where the fluid begins to back up and eventually it'll back up into the entire lung to the point that your patient has pink frothy sputum coming out of their throat. Now there are certain risk factors with congestive heart failure. There are arteriosclerosis, hypertension, and an MI. The signs and symptoms associated with CHF are severe respiratory distress, pulmonary edema in the form of rails, pink frothy sputum, JVD, and dependent edemia. If the patient is bedridden, you will see this in the sacral area, or if they walk around, they'll have pedal edema. So when we do see that pink frothy sputum coming out of the throat, we're gonna to need to suction that. So when we start thinking about the treatment in regards to CHF slash pulmonary edema, in airway, we wanna think suction, suction as needed. We're going to administer high flow oxygen. It's either going to be by a non rebreather mask or we're going to be assisting ventilations via positive pressure. And paramedics will probably be considering CPAP. I know I do. 
positioning. This is high Fowler's. Now we've talked about this in class, but for those of you that are possibly going to be taking a national registry test, the legs are down. So this is the one time where a patient's feet are not on the gurney. We're going to put the patient's legs down on the floor, their feet down on the floor with your feet, so we can try to suck all that extra fluid out of the lungs and put it dip dependent into those feet and ankles. This is something that needs to be done. So when you see how do we transport our patients, well, we transport our, transport our patients in the upright position, legs dependent or legs down. We're going to remove that restrictive clothing, reduce claustrophobia. This will be a rapid transport or reassessment. And we're going to hopefully try to get that pulse ox above 94%. It's going to be difficult, but that's going to be our goal. All right. So let's now talk about pulmonary thromboembolus. Pulmonary embolus are responsible for over 50,000 deaths in the United States. Some of the risk factors associated with pulmonary embolus, which I would suggest you put these on a three by five card as you will be tested on them on your block exam, your final exam, and national registry. So here's your risk factors. Infection and thrombosis, irregular heartbeats, namely atrial fibrillation, recent surgeries, especially abdominal and pelvic, sickle cell anemia, long bone fractures, bedridden patients, IV drug users, users, oral contraceptives, and childbirth. During your testing, you will be asked about which one of these is not a condition of pulmonary or a risk factor of pulmonary embolus, as well as you will be given several scenario questions regarding different patients. You'll see patients that have been in a cast for several months and now developed respiratory distress. Well, that's going to be a PE. Or you're going to have another question regarding respiratory distress, and this time the patient has a long bone fracture or a recent surgery. Well, that would have been caused by a pulmonary embolus. So that's why it's very important to know the risk factors associated with pulmonary embolus. The signs and symptoms associated with the PE are sudden onset, dyspnea, and tachypnea are usual signs and symptoms of respiratory distress, pleuritic chest pain, cyanosis, normal breath sounds, could have rails in severe cases, may have profound hypotension because of the obstructive shock, they could be in cardiac arrest, and the associated risk factors could be present. The treatment for a PE is airway, of course. We're going to administer high-flow oxygen, either a non-rebreather mask or assist with ventilations as needed via BVM or positive pressure ventilation. Position usually is going to be semi-fowlers to fowlers. We're going to remove any restrictive clothing, reduce claustrophobia, and rapid transport with reassessment. There's really not much we can do here for this patient. This is something that a doctor is going to need to fix. So we want to reduce the amount of damage here by supplying that oxygen. Now, during the COPD portion of this lecture, we are talking about a spontaneous pneumothorax. That's a hole in the lung caused, guess what? Spontaneously. So what does that look like? Well, your patient's gonna have the regular signs and symptoms of respiratory distress with diminished lung sounds. This is not a condition of trauma. There's no trauma is associated with this. Once again, this is just spontaneous. Now, those pneumothoraxes that are caused by trauma, we will talk about that in your trauma block lecture. 
Now, there are other medical conditions that can cause respiratory distress. So with that, we can add bacterial and viral respiratory infections to the list. So that would include TB or a, an infection such as with MRSA. Pneumonia or a upper respiratory infection can also cause respiratory distress. As a matter of fact, pneumonia is the fifth leading cause of death in the United States. Can you believe that? In modern day 21st century medicine, pneumonia is the fifth leading cause. Now remember, pneumonia is not just a pneumonia. It's, a, it's not a single disease. It's a group of specific infections and it's attacking the uh, respiratory system as well as the immune system. Some of the risk factors associated with pneumonia are smoking, alcoholism, exposure to the cold, extreme ages, so the old and the young, and immune system failures. What does pneumonia look like? Well, our patients appear ill. They normally will have a history of an upper respiratory infection, acute onset of fever chills, general malaise and weakness, a productive cough, tachycardia, may have pleuritic chest pain, and they could have wheezes and crackles, but usually only one lobe. Since there's not much we can do here for our patients, our treatment will consist of airway, administer of oxygen, this is where you're going to have to decide nasal cannula or non-rebreather mask, position of comfort, we're going to remove that restrictive clothing, try to reduce any claustrophobia, and transport. Now, I don't know if you thought about this, but hyperventilation syndrome is actually a respiratory emergency. Now, here's a long list of things that can cause hyperventilation syndrome. It could be caused by hypoxia, high altitude, pneumonia, pulmonary emboli, asthma, CHF, COPD, hypotension, metabolic disorders, acidosis, hepatic failure, neurological disorders, drug-induced, fever slash sepsis, pain, pregnancy, and my favorite and most popular, psychogenic. Yes, this is that scene in the movie where they have the patient breathing into the paper bag because they're breathing too fast. Most of my hypervent syndrome calls I have gone on have been all psychogenic induced. This is the person who is panicking or who is upset. The signs and symptoms associated with this syndrome are sudden onset, chest pain, symptoms based on etiology, numbness and tingling, cardiopedal spasms, that's when the hands start collapsing on itself and the fingers all come together, tachypnea. Now the treatment, we have to treat the underlying cause. So what is that? We have to figure that out. And we are no longer doing the breathe into a paper bag, so the rebreathing of CO2 is out. So definitely do not be doing that. Okay, so let's talk about immunological emergencies. At least 1,000 Americans per year die of an allergic reaction. Allergy-related allergy emergencies may involve acute airway obstruction or cardiovascular collapse. So a little review. The immune system protects the body from foreign substances and organisms. When a foreign substance invades the body, the body goes on alert. The body initiates a series of responses to inactivate the invader. Now the pathophysiology behind the allergic reaction is the body's 
immune system is now going into overdrive. It releases chemicals to combat the stimulus. This includes histamines and leukotrienes. The allergic reaction could be mild to severe. So when our patient is actually in anaphylaxis, we could have loss of consciousness, hives, swelling of the tongue, inability to swallow, and we could also have rapid swelling of the throat tissue. Now you're going to see another word for hives called urticaria, spelled U-R-T-I-C-A-R-I-A. Urticaria slash hives, this is what I would describe as consists of small areas of generalized itching or burning that appear as multiple small raised areas on the skin. An allergic reaction could be caused by so many different allergens. You can just know them some as insects, peanuts, shellfish, milk, and the list just goes on. I would say probably the one of the more popular ones we go on are insect stings. Deaths from stinging insects far outnumber the deaths from snake bites, believe it or not. Our medical care associated with this is administer basic life support, including oxygen, provide prop, prompt transport to the hospital, reassess vital signs every five minutes for the unstable patient or 15 minutes for the stable patient, position the patient accordingly, so if they're short of breath, semi-fowlers to fowlers, hypotensive, shock, Request ALS backup if need be. And last, be prepared to maintain the airway or administer CPR because the allergic reaction could get worse. Now remember this for testing purposes. The difference between an allergic reaction and anaphylaxis is the respiratory distress factor. So an allergic reaction can be simply hives. But the minute the patient develops any type of respiratory distress, they are officially in anaphylactic shock. Remember that. You need to remember this for testing purposes. Now, for some patients, they, have met, they may have been prescribed an epinephrine pin. So what epi does is it mimics the sympathetic response. Remember that fight or flight. It causes the blood vessels to constrict. It reverses vasodilation and hypotension. It increases cardiac contractility and relieves bronchial spasms. And it rapidly reverses the effects of anaphylaxis. Epi stimulates the alpha and beta receptors in the body. As with any drug, we should understand the side effects of epi. Side effects could include high blood pressure, increased pulse rate, anxiety, cardiac arrhythmias, pallor skin, dizziness, chest pain, headache, nausea, and vomiting. Well, as Bugs Bunny would say, that's all folks. That concludes your respiratory emergency lecture. I look forward to recording your next one. Have a good afternoon and good luck on your block exam and the rest of your program.